Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden and natural world. I'm your host, Misty Little. Way back in 2018, I had today's guest on to talk about his first garden-oriented book, A New Garden Ethic. Today, Benjamin Vogt is back on the podcast to talk about his latest book, Prairie Up, an introduction to natural garden design. A lot has changed in the last five years in regard to native plants and gardening, and I think Benjamin has driven some of that change. Prairie Up is the garden design book that many of us have been looking for, an approach for native plant enthusiasts that is both attainable and manageable, contrary to so many other beautiful design books out there. As you'll hear me say in the interview, the book blew away my expectations, and I think even the most experienced native plant gardener will be able to find something to take away from both the book and the conversation. All right, on to my chat with Benjamin Vogt. Well, if you want to start, I mean, I think a lot of people who know who you are, but maybe someone's listening, they don't know who Benjamin Vogt is, um, who you are, and why you love prairie so much. I mean, I, I love prairie <laughs> because I started gardening with native plants uh, back in, oh, geez, it must have been 2007 now. Uh, so that's 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 what hooked me on it, just observing those plants and seeing what, what wildlife are coming to them. But no, I'm Benjamin Vogt. I'm a garden designer out in eastern Nebraska, uh, work on 95%, 100% native plant landscapes, write books, speak around the country, offer all kinds of resources online. Uh, you know, I'm a multifaceted Renaissance man. Yes, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so... Your book, I was a little bit nervous about it at first, your new one, Prairie Up, um, about uh, an introduction to natural garden design. You know, I've read, you know, several naturalistic garden design books in the last few years that have come out and they're, they're great, but they're thick and often unapproachable. And they show like people who have a lot of money <laughs> and gardens that are gorgeous, but you know, they're not approachable to the home gardener. So what really, why did you decide to do this book to begin with and um how many years did it take you to kind of put it all together i mean this this book probably started roughly two and a half years ago or something uh, when you're working with a university press the process is very uh well it's very elongated it, it takes time to get approval for each stage but the university of illinois press an editor there contacted me they've been following my work were interested in my work and they said have you ever thought about doing a how-to because you you already have a, a really big why in the book a new garden ethics so what about a how and I said, yes. And I said, it was, you know, it was really important for me from the start to have this be a very approachable, very introductory for, for, for people who have not done this sort of, sort of design before. Um, so that they, they could just feel confident about it, about diving in. I mean, it's, it really is a messy and, and complicated thing to do a natural garden design. It's not like just lining up a roll of daylilies in a line in a mulch bed and you're done. Um, so I wanted to make sure, and like you said, there are lots of books out there. Some of them really good, but they're they're targeted for uh, landscape architects, or mm -hmm. or they're just very, or you're right, they're very long and they're very dense. And I wanted this to be something that was you could just read straight through it if you wanted to, in, in, in two hours, and it was digestible and it showed images that were of everyday suburban landscapes. Yes. No. And that's exactly what it is. Cause I got it in the mail and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is way better. Not to say anything is much better than I was expecting. Because again, I was expecting kind of, okay, not another garden design book, but this is, it's, I mean, I will say this is really a great book and it's the book that I think so many people are looking for 
all of the questions you see on Facebook groups of people on Instagram, yeah. like, how do you do this? This is yeah. the answers to that. Yeah, that's, you know, when I first started putting this book together, I just went to social media too. And I said, I, I you know, I know, I know what a lot of you guys have been saying that you know, this sort of stuff, it doesn't exist. This book doesn't exist. The resources don't exist in one spot. And, but, but what else do you want to see in a book like this? Tell me, and I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and like I said, it, it packs, you pack a lot into the book. You go from, you know, choosing plants, you know, based on, you know, botanical diversity. You, know, you talk about germination code, which hardly anybody ever discusses layering plants, you know, native bee importance, which people talk about somewhat, you know, dealing with HOAs, which you've addressed many times on blogs and things like that. And, and the, honestly, the resources at the back, I think are <laughs> one of the best things because, you know, I'm come from more of a botanical biological standpoint, and I'm always referring to some of these sites, but a lot of gardeners don't know about these things. And I appreciated you referring to like bone app and things like that. That was, I, I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely trying to hit home in this book that uh, research is not a daunting thing. It can actually be a fun thing, a liberating thing, a powering and an empowering thing. It just, it can make you, it can make you such a more, uh, such a more successful gardener. If you take a little bit of time to research these plants and plant communities native to you, it's, it, and you, you can sort of ease that brown thumbism that I think a lot of people you know, they sort of have to get over a hump with this, with, with this sort of knowledge with natural garden design. And that's, I'm glad you said that, 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 that uh, last chapter was helpful because I was worried it'd be really boring and sort of just felt, felt tacked on or something. No, no. I thought it was very important. And, you know, people come to me and asking for resources and I'm like, I never have anything all in one place. Yeah. And I'll just be like, go to your book, read this book. It's got great <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Um, so I guess want to kind of talk about the book a little bit, but I also want to kind of talk about the horticulture world a little bit. How has native plant design, um, have you seen any pushback in native plant design versus the naturalistic? Like, it seems like there's a divide there. And sometimes I, I'm trying to broach that topic with people and it seems like you're talking to a wall a lot of times. And do you think there's a chance that this, this book is going to help push push back a little bit on some of that in the horticulture industry? Man, I, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see um, because I mean, I love the challenge uh, of being a, a strong native plant proponent and, and, and creating landscapes that are as close to 100% native plant as possible. I, people tell me, and certainly in horticulture and design that, you know, you, you can't have an aesthetically pleasing landscape when you're using 100% native plants. And I'm just like, aha, really? Okay. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Let's go do this. So, but you know, when, when we're talking about naturalistic garden design, that term naturalistic is, is I think more aligned with the new perennial movement, the, uh, Pete Aldolf movement where you're mixing native plants with exotic plants. So, you know, I sometimes feel like I don't want to use the word naturalistic when I'm talking about my gardens because it's sort of, you know, it's sort of in, in this, in this other place at the same time, I'm not going to sit here and say that mixing exotic plants and native plants is something we need to shun um, because I, there, there is, there is this middle ground. And I think what, what the naturalistic design movement is doing is, I mean, it is doing something important. It's helping us all 
rethink pretty in our landscapes, which, you know, is something I say all the time. Mm -hmm. It's about, you know, showing these more diversified spaces, which are providing so many more ecosystem services. And while I'm never going to use that many, if any, exotic plant species, I understand that in the end, we all have to work together, even though I'm going to keep chanting native plants, native (laughs) plants. Completely understand. So talking about native plants, um, most gardeners garden by USDA zone. That's what's talked about in Mm. garden land. Um, But you're a proponent of gardening by ecoregion and maybe break that down just a little bit for people who aren't familiar with what an ecoregion is. Yeah, everybody says, so you certainly see on Facebook plant groups and garden groups, right? I, I, I'm in USD hardiness zone five and what, what can I use? And I'm just like, oh, that does not, that doesn't tell me anything. Uh, number one, hardiness zones, you know, zone five in Colorado is different than zone five in Pennsylvania. Totally, totally different plants, totally different climate and rainfall and soil topography and all that good stuff. So that's why we want to focus on ecoregions. The uh, the EPA has four different ecoregion level maps, one, two, three, and four. One has like, I don't know, 20 or 30 regions or huge sprawling uh, regions across the United States. And then you get, you sort of zoom in with two and zoom in even more with level three. And I think level four has like 900 ecoregions yeah, on yeah. it. That's, that's insane. Don't do that, guys. <laughs> um, so I always say, you know, ecoregion level three is pretty good. So out here, it's a tall grass prairie strip, which is from the Dakotas through eastern Nebraska into eastern Kansas. And that's that's my ecoregion. So when you're looking at plants from your ecoregion, you're looking at plants that you know are adapted to the climate, um, uh, are, are in sync with local wildlife as much as they can be in the face of uh, who knows what climate change is going to do to all this. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that that's where you start. And, and you can also start by doing your zip code native plant searches at places like Audubon, Paul Native Partnership, uh, Xerxes Society. Um, that's that's a good starting point for native plants. I, and I think it's Paul Native Partnership that has those wonderful PDF guides. I think there's like 12 of them or something. Okay. Based based on where you are in the country. Nice. And those are really in-depth and, and wonderful. Okay. Yeah, I see people are starting to talk more about uh, ecoregions, at least on some of the Facebook groups. And I'm in Houston, and Texas is a huge state. We have a whole bunch mm-hmm. of different ecoregions. And constantly getting people recommending things from Central Texas for Houston. I'm like, do you want it to rot in a, a season? <laughs> You're still talking about, it's a great plant, but you need to go like two hours West to use this plant or make sure it's high and dry. And so I'm, st- I, I'm always constantly telling people like great plant, but maybe not the right place for that one. You know, and I, and I still think we have this idea that, oh, native plant. So as long as it's native to America, it's cool. I think right. we're still, we're still dealing with that, especially for people new to working with native plants and native plant communities. Yes, yes, because definitely some plants in other regions can be quite aggressive and I think sometimes even invasive, depending on who you're talking to. Well, and you know, uh, I'm here in eastern Nebraska, so it's, it's sort of this western line. Um, and, you know, I, I have a lot of the same native plants as folks do on the eastern seaboard of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, but that doesn't mean that they're the same plants, right? They're going to perform totally differently. Mm-hmm. The ecotype, the genetics are different. So there's there's all these different variables. So I can talk, we can talk about the same plants together, but there is a point where we do have to diverge about how they're going to perform in the landscape where we are. Right. Yes. So you're a sedge fan. Um, so why do sedges make everything better in a uh, in home <laughs> garden? 
I don't know if they make everything better. Um, I, I, you know, there are sedges for sun and shade and wet and dry and, and, you know, a sedge that likes it dry and, and shady might actually do quite well in a sunny location. So in some of those sedge species are really adaptable. Sedge are basically, oh, for all intents and purposes, let's just call them grasses. And they tend to be shorter grasses around 12 inches uh, tall or so. Um, but why I like sedge, I, I really like to push the, the shade species of sedge because people will always call, you know, I'm having people talk to me every day. It's like, I have a shady urban location with mm -hmm. mature oak and maple trees and I can't grow anything. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, you know, here's five sedge species. Here's 10 Forbes species. Here's 10 ephemeral flower species. Um, so sedge can give you that shade meadow look. So if you're, you're really into that meadow prairie look, um, and you can't use warm season bunch grasses that need sun, like Cytelts grama, little blue stem. That's where sedge come in, uh, come in. Carex albicans, Carex sprengallii, Carex abernia, Carex rosea, Carex radiata. Stop <laughs> using Latin. Stop using Latin. But sedge are hot right now. It's hard. It's it, it can be hard to find them anymore. You know, a couple of years ago, I could get whatever I wanted whenever for for clients, and now it's like, I got to plan ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely tricky. And we don't have nearly the diversity of species available, um, at least in my area, but I'm always looking for sedges. I <laughs> I'm constantly trying to learn sedges as well. And that's, mm. that's a whole nother tricky thing, but <laughs> it's fun to do. <laughs> I think there, I don't know if care is Carex texensis native to you. Cause that's a cool one. Uh, yeah, it is, but it's not, it's not very common. I think it's more of a central Texas plant. Central Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's around. It's around. <laughs> yeah, it's around. I don't know that it's ever in cultivation. I'd have to look hard for that one. So another thing, you know, with native plant gardens is people think they're weedy or they're trashy and just, just get plants not worth growing. So if someone's getting into native plant garden at their house, um, what are some tips for making them the garden look a little bit less weedy, more well thought out? I mean, in any garden compared to the monoculture of lawn that you're replacing is going to look comparatively weedy, right? So, I mean, that's that's just a given when you when you're used to a green a green carpet, uh, you know, for a couple square miles. Uh, you, you can start small. Um, you can certainly make your foundation beds bigger. Most of the foundation beds in my neighborhood are maybe two or three feet mm -hmm. deep. They're really mm -hmm. narrow. So maybe you go out six or eight feet from the house. Um, so you'll have your matrix or ground cover, your living green mulch of, of sedge or, or, or warm season short bunch grasses like Cytoats grama or blue grama, something like that. And you plant those every 12 inches right on a grid. And then you come in and you, you mass your, your, you mass flowers. So you might have three Echinacea purpurea here. That's purple cone flower. You might have three Echinacea purpurea over there, another three over there. And you just, so, so you, you just sort of repeat these these clumped masses and that that shows that repetition that when we you know when you go out to a prairie i think our first inclination is to try to make sense of it to to make order of it and we immediately key on uh key in on the drifts and masses of the flowers that are blooming um at, at that time that we're in that prairie mm -hmm. so that's the same thing we want to do in our landscape and just sort of translate that down to a smaller space so it's more approachable and simpler Yes. Yes. And, you know, it's definitely a tricky situation uh, doing all of that. But I think once you have it, you have it lined out and it's in its, you know, third or fourth year of growing and people see that, hey, this can actually look really nice. You can entice other people to 
at least be more curious and interested and ask the questions and at least get them going that direction. Um, I know it's, it's tricky getting people turned on to doing it themselves. Um, do you have, have you, I'm trying to think of a timeline of like converting people. <laughs> I feel like it's almost like a decade <laughs> of talking to people and then finally they uh, do something about a change. So like, how have you seen change happen with folks over the years? How long does oh, it take? I haven't, I haven't. I really, you know, um, see, we, we do about 25 or 30 landscapes a year and about one, maybe two a year are reported by neighbors to weed control uh, authorities. And, you know, it's not like in my neighborhood, you know, it's like people are coming to me and saying, hey, how do you do, how do, you do this? I'd yeah. like to do that. I don't see anybody trying. It's just like there's that freak over there um, and nobody really likes what he's doing. I mean, that's not that's not true. I have a, a couple of people who walk by all the time and say how nice it looks, but maybe they're just pandering to me. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, I think I think this goes back. To, to, to the question right 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 before this about how, how to do it and how to make it look nice and I, I think the inclination is once you start um, getting hooked on gardening and all the cool plants that there are it's easy to overdo it and select too many flower species um, before you know it it will start to look messy because you're just throwing cool things in here and there and all over the place and then it starts to look more like a weed patch you gotta you gotta start simple one or two grass or sedge species for that base the layer that ground cover and maybe you limit yourself to to seven to ten uh, flower species and you just you just start out that way you know once you once you learn about the plants, learn how the landscape is growing, where the plants are moving, you can start to sneak in um, additional things uh, th th that are going to work and give you that aesthetic appeal that you need. But I always tell folks, look, the easiest part is the research and the planting. I think the hardest part is that you are now be have to be an advocate for this space. Um, so that, that can be where it can be you know, emotionally fraught with Peril yes at times <laughs> yeah. well yeah just educating people and trying to talk to them and and get them to understand where you're coming from and not that you need to spray every plant that's or cut down everything and so many people just want that clear lawn look and i it's sometimes well, it's just easy talk, it's talking to a wall <laughs> It's easy. People yeah. people grew up learning how to mow. Their parents made them mow once a week. They know that you mow once a week. You water twice a week. You fertilize every three months or two months. And you know, when you look at a more natural landscape, you, I think the tendency is to think, "Wow, that's that's a lot of work." And mm -hmm. I think all the work is up front in the planning and the research. But um, look, when you're designing a landscape, ha have cues to care, right? Have a have a lawn pathway or mulch pathway going through, have a sign, have a little sculpture, have an arbor, have a bench, um, have, have it look approachable for humans. Yes, yes. One of the things I also appreciated about your book was you're creating your own seed mix. And um, that brings me kind of back to the ecoregion talk because it's really hard for me to, I feel like Texas in particular and some other places in the South, we just don't have nearly the um, native plant availability that other states, especially in the Midwest and the North, we have to piece things together. So sometimes I'm buying seeds that aren't even from, you know, they might be in my region, but they're not the same ecotype per se. So oh, yeah. I'm always piecing things together. And I appreciate that you had your own seed mix built in, built in there because that's something that I don't think people think much about very often. 
Uh, I th I think people look to seeds because they're more affordable, right? If if you're planting a 500 square foot garden and you're using all, all plugs, which are the cheapest planted material you could possibly get, it's still going to be uh, you know expensive, especially if you're going to use a designer to do that. So people look to seeds, you know. But the issue issue with seeding is that the look is definitely going to be wilder, and it's going to take a lot longer, two to three times longer, for the plants to self organize into masses and drifts that are legible to people walking by. Your landscape so yeah i talked about seeding i think more i think my idea uh, when i when i discussed seeding in the book was was thinking more about people who maybe have large backyards or 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 even acreage spots or just wanted to experiment with a really super tiny corner that wasn't you know out front and totally visible mm -hmm. um, but yeah people are always talking uh, online about uh, you know well, how do i do this by how do i do this by seed and i'm like well i mean there's pros and cons to that which i discuss in the book yeah yeah no i again you cover so many great topics in the book and you know while it may not answer every question at least gets people thinking and then they can go do further research elsewhere that pertains toward to their uh, region but um it's it's a pretty awesome comprehensive book and i appreciate you uh thinking about and taking the time to write it and, and agreeing to write it with the, the press. Um, I hope uh, a lot of people buy it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I should add, because, because people ask me this too, you know, uh, the press is in Illinois, I'm in Nebraska. Is it just a Midwest book? And I really don't think it's just a Midwest book. I try in the beginning to say, you know, there's Prairie Meadow Savannah in, in all, all, all portions uh, of the lower 48. And that if you have a lawn, um, you know, right now, most, I think most people are thinking about, you know, reducing their lawns or taking out their lawns completely. If you have a lawn, you pretty much already have a prairie space. So yeah, this book, this book is for you. And this book is not providing, it's a very different kind of garden design book because it's not, I don't feel like it's prescriptive. Like here's, here's a plan, even though I have some plans, these are the plants. This is what you should do in your landscape. I mean, the, those plans that are in the book are just examples. You have to do your own research. You have to find out what plants are going to work for your site. You have to take the time to do that. And, and that's what garden design is. Right. Right. Yes. You have great examples of species and there's definitely going to be something analogous to you, no matter where you're at in uh, the country for sure. And it may not be exactly perfect or right, but uh, it'll work for you. Yeah, there is, there is, there is no perfect and there is no right. Just, you know, get planting and let the plants teach you and, and, and be humble. Don't be, don't be a helicopter gardener, right? Let, let the plants show you what they want, even if they want to be dead. That's okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So speaking of dead, um, maybe talk a little bit about your garden. I know fall is one of your favorite times in, in your garden, but it's winter right now. So what are some favorite mm -hmm. aspects about your garden and in, in this type of situation when, you know, it doesn't look you know, the best to most people. Yeah. Come on guys. This is the sexiest <laughs> time of year. Oh no. And I love autumn. Autumn is the best time of year in the landscape. And, you know, all the trees and the shrubs and the, and the grasses and the perennial forbs, all, all the leaves are changing color. And, you know, in the winter, brown is a color too. There's lots of great uh, hues and shades of brown out there. I'm looking out my window right now at my little blue stem and my slide oats grandma and the, and the gothic jet black seed heads of Echinacea pallida and the umbels of asters that have long since lost their seeds. I'm looking at the, the dark brown seed heads of, of Lespedeza capitata, round-headed bush clover, that those seed heads last all winter long. Uh, even the Amsonia hubrichtii and the Amsonia lustrous still have some uh, 
some golden hued leaves on them. So there's a lot of texture. There's a lot of movement out here. The birds are happy. They're constantly foraging and all that cover. Um, there's a neighborhood cat out here that's always at the window trying to tick our cat off. So <laughs> it brings all the wildlife to your yard, <laughs> all the wildlife, but you know, that, but, but everybody, please bring your cats inside. Don't just don't stop it. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> PSA. PSA. Um, well, I do want to say, do you have any final thoughts about people who are going to purchase your book and maybe start attempting to get into native plant gardening this, this spring? They're going to go out to the nursery. Um, how should they use your book to, to get going like that? You, you use the book as sort of a fundamental understanding or approach to how you're going to research your plants and prep the site and and, the, and then get planting. Um, it, it really is radically different than how we've all been raised to think about gardens. But at the same time, I think it feels just so much more right once you start doing it. You feel totally more in sync with the site and and you don't feel like you're forcing something onto the landscape. You're, you're listening to the landscape. You're listening to the plants. And and just, yeah, take time to do research before you buy anything. You you have my permission to make a few impulse buys, especially if you're <laughs> at a small mom and pop nursery and you want to support them. But uh, yeah, the research is important. It's not it's not that daunting, even if you, even though I encourage folks to use Latin and scientific plant names to get accurate information. Uh, once you get going, it's 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 really exciting. Yes. And absolutely. Use your phone to look up plant names because half the time mm -hmm. plants are mislabeled at a nursery. <laughs> That too. And then, uh, yeah, and don't, and don't trust those plant tags. There is not enough information. And it's, I think it's almost totally the wrong information to, mm -hmm. to help you make an informed decision when, when you're working with plant communities and all the dynamic things that plants do from spreading to when they bloom and all that good stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I know your book is, has recently been released and it's all over, you know, all the places you can buy it. I know I think you just posted that Amazon was having some issues, but where where else can people buy the book? Can they buy it directly from you? Yeah, you can get it from me, a signed copy. You can go to the University of Illinois Press, which is, should probably be your first step. Uh, the, the first printing sold out three weeks before release, and they're rushing a wow. second printing through right now. So uh, <laughs> right now, the University of Illinois Press has, has told me they will have books at least uh, at least for the next couple of weeks. So Okay, good, good. And where are you at online? If people are listening, this is the first time they've ever heard about you. Where can they find more information? Yeah, you can just Google Benjamin Vote. You can Google Monarch Gardens LLC, which is monarchgard.com. Uh, yeah, just Google Prairie Up. Google the other book, A New Garden Ethic. Google yeah. Sexy Prairie Guy from Nebraska. It's all there, <laughs> guys. You can find it. Yes, definitely A New Garden Ethic. Pair that one with this book, and I think you're set to uh, <laughs> on your native plant journey for sure. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming back on the podcast to talk to me. I really appreciate this book. I'll be sharing it with other people. I know other native plant nerds uh, like myself have been very excited to, to read it and I will be uh, telling everybody else to read it. Thank you so much. I appreciate speaking with you here today. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Benjamin Vogt, author of the new book, Prairie Up. I'll have show notes for the conversation at thegardenpathpodcast.com and information on where you can find Benjamin's book to purchase. While you're at it, consider signing up for the podcast newsletter or finding the newsletter on Substack. And don't forget to share the podcast with other gardeners. Thanks for listening and happy gardening.